welcome. I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Before I actually start the episode, I wanted to say something. I realize that most of my full crime biscuits are all different lengths. My goal is to keep them under an hour. Sometimes they're barely 30 minutes. Here's my philosophy. I have a story I want to tell you. And if it drags out for almost an hour, then it does. But if it's short, then it is. The only way I could make them all the same length is if I add filler, if I talk about things that maybe you're not really interested in, and I don't think anyone wants that. If it bothers you that they're not all the same length, I apologize, but I don't intend to just start rambling at you like I'm doing right now, just to fill the time. Now on with the episode. This episode is Not the Right American Dream. This one is a little bit rough, just in the sense that I feel there is more than one victim here. Yes, one of them committed murder, and guilt should be assigned. At the same time, the perpetrator was pretty much raised to do what he did, under the auspices of being a good son. I got a lot of my information from an article in the Santa Monica Daily Press that was written by Jack Newworth called The Fall of the Good Son and from Evil Kin, The Tragedy of Chicago's Sioux Family by Libby fisher Helmet. And I have seen the um, investigation discovery episode on it called The American Nightmare at least three times. So what this is is the story of Andrew and Catherine Sue and Robert O'Dubain. In 1974, the Sioux family immigrated to the United States from Seoul, South Korea. Andrew Sioux was just two years old. His sister Catherine, five years older, was seven. It's important to understand that family structure is fundamental to Korean culture. Basically, it's the foundation of their entire society. Keep this in mind and know that this comes with them to the United States. When they get here, they move to Chicago. And there is already an established Korean community there. So before long, they have two businesses, a pharmacy that Ronald ran and his wife Elizabeth had a dry cleaning business. And the kids helped in both businesses. The kids also did the translating for them. By 10, Andrew is translating business deals for his parents. Andrew is, by all appearances, the dedicated son, obedient, industrious, and as helpful as he can possibly be to his parents. He was raised with the Korean mindset that children do whatever their parents ask of them. He was, in their eyes, the perfect son. Catherine, on the other hand, she appeared to have no inclination whatsoever to behave as a Korean daughter was expected to. She wanted to wear makeup and trendy clothes. She did not want to help with the dry cleaning business, but she wanted to hang out with her friends. She pretty much did as she pleased and ignored her parents' wishes. Her and her father had this terrible relationship. It didn't help that Ronald openly praised Andrew, his son, and very rarely had anything good to say about his daughter. Also, because of the Korean culture, the son is the more important child because they inherit the family estate and carry on the name. There had been an older son, that had died before they left Korea. Ronald insisted that they immediately try to have another son. This is after the eldest son died from falling off of a roof. In fact, if Elizabeth didn't give him a son, Ronald said he would divorce her. 
Fortunately, Elizabeth was able to give him another son. That was Andrew. This gives us a filter that we can use to see the family dynamic that is going on within the Sioux family. Since Andrew is the son, and because of the cultural aspect that is so ingrained in the parents, basically it makes Andrew the golden child, while Catherine is just sort of overlooked. Once Catherine learns American customs and can speak English, she wants her whole family to adapt to being American and stop acting like they're still in Korea. This does not go over well with dad particularly, so this is where some of the headbutting and the strife begins. Catherine grows up to be pretty and attractive, and she finds that she can use those good looks to manipulate men. This does not go over well with her traditional old world father. Ronald, who is a former military officer, doesn't much care for what he perceives as his daughter's promiscuous behavior. He goes so far as to forbid her to behave like an American teenager, which is, of course, exactly what she wants to be. Catherine likes luxury cars, boyfriends with money to spend, expensive clothes. So even though Catherine is older and has her own goals for herself in life, at home, she has to live under her younger brother's shadow. In rebellion, she starts staying out late, coming home drunk, even not coming home at all. She is doing everything she can to piss her father off. The negative attention from her father seems to be the only kind of attention she gets. He reportedly, according to her, abuses her emotionally and physically. One of those nights that she stayed out all night, when she gets home, Ronald hits her, slaps her in the face. Well, it's not the first time, but this time Catherine decides that's enough and she hits him back. You can imagine dad loses his mind. He goes so over the deep end that he threatens to kill himself because Catherine has dishonored him and the whole family. Maybe in a normal family dynamic, this threat um, might have meant something, might have maybe spurred some kind of change in the relationship. But Catherine at this point is pretty much over the whole family. She does not care what her father thinks of her. She does not care what her mother thinks of her. And she probably didn't really care if her father threatened to kill himself, it wouldn't have made any difference to her. It's a few years after this, Ronald is diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer. It's about two weeks, I think, that he's in the hospital. That whole time, Andrew does not leave his father's side. The devotion that he felt to his father was described in an article in a local Korean newspaper, and that article was entitled, The Good Son. So here's a continuation of Andrew is the golden child, Andrew is the preferred child. Catherine, on the other hand, only comes to the hospital once while her father is dying. So in 1985, on his deathbed, Ronald makes 13-year-old Andrew promise to protect his mother, which is a heavy-ass burden to put on a 13-year-old boy. But this is how Andrew has been raised, and so, of course, Andrew fully intends to keep this promise. This is a promise, though, that Andrew will not be able to keep. Catherine, I'm guessing, is probably relieved at her father's death. The family ends up having to close the pharmacy. Elizabeth begins to rely on Andrew as he steps up to fill the role as man of the house because this is what their culture has taught them. This is what Andrew is expected to do and this is what Andrew does. Catherine, who is unfazed by her dad's death and the closing of one of the businesses, her rebellious behavior escalates. This is when she meets Robert O. Dubain. Her mother does not approve. 
First off, he is not Korean. And second of all, he is seven years older than Catherine. Elizabeth forbids Catherine to see Robert. But Catherine is not going to stop seeing Robert, and the tension between mother and daughter keeps increasing. A couple of years after Ronald's death, a neighbor of the dry cleaning business make a phone call to the police. It is just after midnight, and they are reporting strange noises coming from the dry cleaners. Police find Elizabeth Sue lying in a pool of blood, having been stabbed 37 times. Initially, police believe that this is like a robbery gone wrong. So they go to the Sioux residence and talk to Andrew. As they're talking to him, Catherine arrives on the back of a motorcycle driven by Robert O'Duvain. She has very little emotional reaction to the news of her mother's death. This does not go unnoticed by police. Robert, on the other hand, goes to Andrew and tries to comfort him. After the police have left the crime scene, Andrew has to literally clean up his mother's blood. Now let's talk quickly about the way Elizabeth was murdered. Very personally, the kind of thing that happens when the killer knows the victim. Us true crime addicts know that overkill is a sign of a relationship of some kind and of an extreme hatred. Just like strangling is a very intimate method of murder, so is frenzied stabbing. And the cops are, of course, very aware of this. At the time of Elizabeth's murder, the police do suspect Catherine. At least they suspect she had something to do with it. And potentially, the man that she was seeing, Robert. The police think that this is an inside job. So they question the family. And, of course, the $800,000 that Catherine inherited is a pretty good motive in their mind. But Robert and Catherine provide an alibi for each other. So despite the fact that the police believe either Catherine did it or Robert did it or they both did it, they cannot crack their airtight alibi. So now Catherine, who really does not know anything about being nurturing or loving, is now responsible for her brother. Or at least she has to act the part. She never had love from her parents that she thought she deserved which I'm sure she is bitter about. Now, though, she has to put on the mom outfit to her brother because Andrew, being the male, has inherited the mother's estate but is too young to actually have control of the money. So I'm not saying Catherine didn't really love her brother, but up till now, she does not paint a very loving picture of herself. She does not paint a picture of someone who is really interested in being a part of the family. But in order to have access to the money, she is going to have to have some role in Andrew's life. Andrew, who is really probably emotionally lost and not feeling particularly loved, is got two options, his sister or the foster care system. I'm thinking he picked the lesser of two evils, or what he thought would be the lesser of two evils, and chose his sister. At this point, Robert O'Dubain moves into the house with Andrew and Catherine. Robert really does a good job of taking Andrew under his wing. And he starts being the big brother slash father figure. Uh, some of the pressure is off of Andrew now to be the man of the house. As he gets older, Robert gives him his first beer and teaches him to drive a stick shift. Robert would take Andrew and Catherine to spend Christmas with his own family. Andrew was able to be a kid for the first time and to be an American kid 
not responsible for translating business documents and working and going to school and being an adult in a little person's body. Catherine does kind of take on a mother role while Robert is living with them, makes him do his homework, make sure he eats dinner, and Andrew does begin to look up to her. And eventually, he does totally begin to rely on her. He's doing well in school. His senior year, he ends up being the valedictorian of his class, and he earns himself a scholarship. So together, Catherine and Robert are kind of tearing through some of the inheritance, but they also have started their own businesses. They use the money they're making to buy a better house, as well as purchasing and renovating a nearby nightclub and purchasing houses and flipping them all over Chicago. So they are kind of living this fast-paced life, and they are certainly enjoying the money. Fancy cars, fancy restaurants, high-end shopping on the Magnificent Mile, all the things that Catherine has always wanted. Now Andrew leaves for college, and things start going sour between Robert and Catherine. Things in the businesses aren't maybe going so well as they were, and Catherine, who absolutely wants to live a certain lifestyle and is in danger of failing to do so, needs to find a way out of the relationship. Mind you, Andrew is at college. He is going to Providence College in Rhode Island, and he sees this conflict going on between Catherine and Robert when he's home. Robert is still an important figure in his life. He kind of became that father replacement figure. It seems like they do make some attempt to calm things down when Andrew is there. But since he is only there on occasion, since he's in college, there's a lot of fighting going on. Robert and Catherine, who've been together for five years at this point, just cannot get their act together. Catherine even starts dating other men, but the two of them continue to live together and run their businesses. Catherine is relying more and more heavily on Andrew. She tells her brother that Robert is spending all their money, that he's gambling it away, and then she goes on to convince Andrew that she is being physically abused by Robert. Andrew has never seen this with his own eyes. He doesn't necessarily believe it. He can't see how Robert would suddenly become this beast. That is not the Robert he knew. But Catherine will not let up, and she goes on to remind her brother that Andrew is all she has. They are family, and Andrew needs to do something to help her. Out of the blue, Catherine tells Andrew that it was Robert that had brutally stabbed and murdered their mother. If this were me, the first question out of my mouth would have been, then why in the hell are you in a relationship with him? Then I have to stop and remind myself that Andrew is young. Maybe he did ask that question. And Catherine, who is a master manipulator, was probably able to convince Andrew of some far-fetched explanation as to why she would stay with the man who murdered their mother. Andrew does say to her that they should go to the police. But Catherine convinces Andrew that if they do, Catherine herself will be arrested. And why? Because she is the one that provided Robert an alibi. Catherine works her dark magic on her brother, and ultimately she does convince him that they must kill Robert to save the family's honor. She doesn't bother mentioning to Andrew that she will get $250,000 by way of a life insurance payout if Robert is dead. Robert O'Dubain was never found guilty of Elizabeth's murder, so I want to put that out there so I don't get sued. Police suspect he might have, and it would explain a lot if Catherine had put him up to it, but that is neither here nor there. For the next several weeks, Catherine bombards Andrew with over 60 phone calls. She's calling him daily at college, eventually... She breaks him down. 
The Chicago police get a phone call about some shots fired. They find a man in an alleyway garage. Police are able to identify the victim as Robert O. Dubain, and they identify his girlfriend as Catherine Sue, who is in the house attached to the garage where Robert is found. She tells police that she hasn't seen Robert in weeks, though they do live together, but she makes sure they know she is seeing someone else. She tells police that Robert owes money all over Chicago due to gambling. That's probably why he was killed. The police are looking around, and they're kind of figuring this crime scene does not add up. His car is located just a couple of blocks away from the garage. A carjacking theory doesn't seem very likely. Also, Catherine's alibi that she was shopping at the time doesn't stand up very long when the police discover that at the time she was supposedly shopping, the store she had named was actually closed an hour before she claims to have been there. Through their investigation, the police end up interviewing a woman Robert was dating. Her name is Maria. Maria tells police that she had talked to Robert the evening he was killed. As a matter of fact, she was on the phone with Robert when he got another phone call. He hung up with her to take the call. Then he called Maria back and said, that was Catherine who just called. Catherine says her car is broken down and Robert needs to go help her. This then, obviously, destroys Catherine's claim that she hasn't spoken to Robert in weeks. The police also discover that Catherine has a $250,000 life insurance policy on Robert, of which she is the beneficiary. When the police confront her about the story being closed and that they know for a fact she talked to Robert right before the murder, Catherine looks them dead in the face and asks for a number, as in, give me a number to make this go away. She's trying to bribe a police officer. Well, they put her under arrest at this point, and this is six weeks after the murder. Catherine does make bond and moves into a luxurious high-rise apartment in Chicago and keeps up her normal habits. As in finding herself rich boyfriends, she invents a new persona for herself by the name of Cassia Kane. She's supposedly a real estate agent. Most people who are about to be tried for a serious crime would maybe tone down the lifestyle a little bit, but not Catherine. So while they're investigating, trying to get more evidence prior to trial, detectives get some new evidence via the DEA. Apparently, at the Dallas airport in November of 93, a DEA agent had stopped a suspicious-looking man. They suspected that this person was a drug carrier. And when they pulled the man aside, they find $65,000 in cash in his gym bag. That man was Andrew Sue. When they search the rest of his possessions, they find a wallet belonging to one Robert O. Dubain, the wallet that was stolen when he was murdered. The DEA agent asks him, who is Robert O. Dubain? Andrew doesn't answer. So the DEA sends Andrew to Chicago and gives him over to the Chicago Police Department. Now when the police are at the airport waiting for Andrew, when he finally comes off the plane and he approaches them, the police look him in the face and tell him, Andrew, it's over. And Andrew reportedly collapses basically into the arms of the police officers. And he says, I know. But once they get him back to the station for questioning, Andrew goes silent. They tell Andrew that they believe his sister masterminded the murder and that he only did what she told him to do. This doesn't work, though, because Andrew will not 
turnover on his sister. He is loyal and denies that either of them, not himself either, had any involvement. Now the police go ahead and switch up tactics on him, and they pull out some crime scene photos. These are photos of his mother after she had been stabbed 37 times. They are pointing at these pictures and telling him, this is what your sister did. This is what she did to your mother. Eventually, Andrew cannot take it. He breaks down when confronted with these photos, pushes the photos away, and tells the police that he will tell them what they need to know. He then tells them about the daily phone calls he received at college from his sister. Some of the phone calls are just her begging him to help her, that she has to. They're family. They all, they're all each other have. Some of those phone calls are asking Andrew to murder Robert. Eventually, Catherine had wore him down and convinced him to help her. He tells police that in the garage, she had hidden a gun in a bag and a plane ticket for him to get back to school after he had done the deed. Catherine showed Andrew how exactly she wanted him to kill Robert and told him that if he loved her, he'd do it. Andrew waited for hours in that garage for Robert to get there. I'm sure that he is thinking back on the relationship that he had with Robert, which was actually good. I don't know what all went on in his head during those hours, but in the end, when Robert came to get his car to supposedly go pick up Catherine, Andrew steps out and shoots him. After Robert is down, Andrew shoots him again to be sure he's dead. Andrew goes on to tell the police that after he killed Robert, he knew his sister would be happy. Then he takes Robert's wallet and keys to make it look like a robbery. He moves the car a few blocks away and gets back on a plane and goes back to college. Eventually, he has a little run-in with the DE agent that intercepts him, and you know the rest. Back in Chicago, two days before her trial is supposed to start in September of 1995, Catherine doesn't show up in court. She has disappeared and left her brother to face the music alone. Police and the FBI are looking everywhere for Catherine. That's when they figure out that she had assumed an identity, Tasha Kane. They talk to people who live in the building where she was living, people who know her, and they have no idea that she is really Catherine Sue and that she is supposed to be on trial for murder. They find out that Tasha Kane has sold her luxury car and also had purchased a book on how to change your identity. So Catherine is in the wind. Her trial, however, goes on without her. Her absence spoke volumes about her guilt, and the prosecution was sure to point that out. She is convicted and sentenced by Cook County Judge John Morrissey to life. She's 27 at the time of the sentencing, though she has not been found yet. Andrew's trial is pretty high profile, and unfortunately, seems he had a rather incompetent lawyer who talks him into not having a jury trial or to testify on his own behalf. Both the police and the district attorney state unequivocally during his trial that Catherine was the mastermind, and they pointed out that Andrew was an honor student with no violent history. It didn't matter. In the end, the judge sentenced him to 100 years. Catherine, who is going by the name Tiffany, is in Hawaii while her brother is being sentenced. While she's there, she snags herself a surfer boyfriend and talks him into selling his place to buy a more stylish place to live in. Because heaven forbid Catherine live anywhere that's not stylish. But things don't stay that pleasant for Catherine, at least not for very long. She finds herself sort of famous 
when she's featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted. A friend in Hawaii sees the program and calls the FBI. After the airing of the program, Catherine knows it's just a matter of time before they find her. She goes into hiding again, but six weeks go by and eventually, probably living in hiding, not having luxurious cars and makeup and clothing is a little too much for Catherine because she ends up walking into a YWCA looking all dirty and disheveled. She herself calls the FBI and turns herself in. She is brought back for her sentence to be given, and after it is handed down, she is given the opportunity to address the victim's family. She remains silent. She doesn't apologize to Robert's family or even look their way during the sentencing. A little FYI, down the road, Catherine ends up getting another 30-year sentence for armed robbery, and then after she's in prison, she gets another two years for aggravated battery for going after a member of the prison staff. So what became of Andrew? In prison, Andrew has earned an AA degree and teaches classes for other inmates. He also took care of his cellmate, who was an elderly Korean. Andrew speaks three languages, is very intelligent, friendly, and most importantly, very remorseful. What he did was very wrong. I'm not saying it wasn't, but it's kind of sad all the way around. He tried to be a good son, He tried to be a good brother. He had to endure the death of two parents and then live under the manipulative reign of a sociopath disguised as a sister. He committed a horrific murder, not for financial or personal gain. He did it for the love of a sister. And that is what I find sad. Here's the usual ending stuff. Send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Facebook. Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast, Instagram, Twitter, Crime Biscuit. And here's your final crumb. Do not kill people for your sister, no matter how happy you think it'll make her. Thanks for joining me. Bye.